Well, let's pick up uh, where we left off, kind of, last week. We're actually going to back up a little bit. Um, hopefully today we're going to finish this section on what man was like before the fall. One of my favorite things to talk about and teach about. Very important that we have an understanding of these things because um, we're going back to this in a way. Um, the way that the things were before, the way God designed them, the way that they were before sin entered the world, uh, the world's going back there. Um, things will look a little different, but it's important to understand how God created us so we can understand what the fall affected. You don't know what's affected by the fall if you don't know what was there before the fall. So let's uh, consider again this quote from Anthony Hokema. A good book that you should have if you only have one book on anthropology, which is the study of man. If you only have one book on that, make it this book, Created in God's Image by Anthony Hokema. He says, man then exists in a state of psychosomatic unity. So we were created, so we are now. And so we shall be after the resurrection of the body. For full redemption must include the redemption of the body, since man is not complete without the body. And that makes that time period between our death and the resurrection a very interesting time. Because our body is in the grave. And yet our immaterial, our soul, our spirit, our nephesh, that's the Hebrew word for it, our, our immaterial is with God, isn't it? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But that's not the way that we were created to have our soul and our body separate. So there's going to have to be a rejoining of that in the resurrection. And the only time that those two elements are apart, the material and the immaterial, is in the intermediate state, that time after we die before the resurrection. So we'll be, we'll be ready for a glorified body at the end of uh, that stage. This is... no, um, oh, I need that. There we go. Heath Lambert, the body is very good and is declared to be so by God himself, who makes his home in it. Sin is very bad, and it weakens and decays the body. We long for the day, mentioned by Paul, when we will have glorified bodies, not stained by sin and weakness. As much as we long for heaven and our experience of heaven apart from the body, we also long for the day that we will be resurrected and glorified and uh, back in this place in a new creation to reign with him forever. Uh, so hopefully those stages are clear, somewhat clear in your mind. We will get to eschatology eventually and have a lot more detail filled out there. But for the moment, uh, hope that makes sense to you. Any thoughts or questions on these things? A little bit of review before we get into new stuff. Andy? I'm, I'm sorry. <clears throat> Where are we on this? Are we I don't know. I don't have one. I don't have one in front of me. Yeah. Were you in here last week? Yeah, Tyler went through most of this last week, so you'll have to uh, get info from someone else to get the blanks and stuff. But uh, that's well, I don't have a filled out one, uh, so I made it. I don't know it. Okay. Well, to respond to your yes question, so that's. Directly, what you just said directly applies to Romans 8, whatever the verse that is. We eagerly wait for it with patience. Yeah. The, the, the redemption, the, the, yeah, the 
redemption of the body. So yeah, there's still a, a little bit of incompleteness there. Yeah. And it also makes clear the absurdity of the LDS claim that we existed long before our bodies. Yes. Yeah, we touched on that last week in the beginning part of this, that there was never a time when the soul and body were separate until the intermediate state. Uh, that's the only time. Yeah, and the, the incompleteness thought is interesting too. You know, we think, I, I don't know, uh, people who claim Christianity tend to err on this one side or the other. One is thinking, well, after we die and go to heaven, then that's it. We've made it. We've arrived. But there is still a sense of incompleteness there, isn't there? Because the soul is separated from the body. The body's in the grave. And, the, and God made the body good, didn't he? And he's going to resurrect that body and the soul will be joined to the body. And then the other way people err is to think, this is mainly Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah's Witnesses, and some others, is that when Christians die, they aren't present with the Lord at all. They're asleep. It's called soul sleep, what they, what they call it. So the soul is in the body, it's not separated at all, and everything's in the grave, just waiting for Christ to return. And in the case of Jehovah's Witnesses, you might be resurrected, <laughs> or might not be, uh, 144,000 and all that stuff. But with Seventh-day Adventists, you know, the thought is, the soul is there in the body, the soul is never separate from the body, it's all there in the grave waiting for Jesus to return. However, uh, there are scriptures that clearly teach against that. 2 Corinthians 5, again, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Philippians 1, Paul said he wished he would die. To be with the Lord is far better. <laughs> um, but it's better, for, for more fruitful for them if he remained. Right? So there's a clear teaching in scripture that our soul and our body do separate during that time. Uh, of course, too, there's Lazarus and the rich man in Luke 16. But... Uh, but yeah, we need to keep in mind there's a sense of incompleteness. Even though it'll be a great day, even though we rejoice when people go to heaven, that's not the end, is it? There's a lot more still left to come. And, and we're premillennial. So when you think about being resurrected and Jesus coming back and reigning on the earth for a thousand years, there's still some incompleteness there. Because what happens at the end of the thousand years? Well, before that, what, what causes that? At the end of the thousand years, what happens? The devil's released again. There you go. Sin rears its ugly head again. There's still sin that makes its way in a powerful way to try to fight against God. And so there's, even that thousand years, there's a sense of incompleteness because sin hasn't been done away with forever yet. And then it's after that, new heaven and new earth, as Jerry mentioned. That's where things are complete, right? Okay, so now with the, the resurrection, the resurrection body of the wicked. Yeah. Their bodies stay in the grave, their souls Haiti somewhere. Yes. And uh, but when ours when our bodies are rejoining our spirits, mm -hmm. am I correct? Is theirs not at that point? Is there a time when their bodies or is it everybody's? So when they are resurrected, um, well let's look at uh, We've got time today. Daniel 12. Let's go there together. Daniel chapter 12. And then we'll also go to John 5. So if you want to go ahead and just go to John 5, that's fine. If you want to look at both, that's fine. But Daniel 12.
And let's look at verses 1 through 3. Daniel 12, 1 to 3. Who wants to read that for us? Okay. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protected your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to everlasting shame and contempt. All three. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens. Those who lead, uh, and those who led many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. Okay, so there's an, a concept that's introduced here in the Old Testament, and we get more information, of course, in the New Testament. But the concept introduced here that there's a resurrection for both the just and the unjust. There's a resurrection for the. Um, for some to everlasting life, and others to everlasting contempt. Now let's pair that with John 5, to Jesus' teachings in John 5, right around verse 28, I think. Yeah, let's, let's do 26 to 30. John 5, 26 to 30. Yeah. 26 to 29. Who can read that for us? Jerry, go ahead. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. All right, so here you've got Jesus affirming what's taught in Daniel. Uh, those who did good to a resurrection of life, and Daniel said eternal life. And those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment, Daniel said uh, everlasting contempt. And now let's finish at the back of our Bibles at Revelation 20 and see where this plays out as we get a peek to the future. Revelation 20, 11 to 15. Who would read that for us? Revelation 20, 11 to 15. Okay. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. All right. So, you've just been given a... Uh somewhat comprehensive look at uh, <laughs> what happens uh, in the resurrection. Now, we did skip over Luke 16. Luke 16 speaks to the intermediate state, not the eternal state. And so there are some aspects in there that 
um, only apply to then and perhaps some aspects that apply till now. What's interesting in Luke 16 with the rich man being in Hades is he asks for a drop of water to be placed on his tongue because he's in torment in that flame. His body hadn't been resurrected yet. Isn't that something? So even from an aspect of just looking at the immaterial, before the soul is back joined with the body, there's something going on where they're feeling some sort of pain and torment. When it comes to hell, there are a variety of views on what happens to soul and body. Annihilationists believe that essentially the soul and body dissolve and they, dissolve, they just go away forever. And that, that's what happens when they're thrown into the lake of fire at the very end. That a lot of annihilationists believe in Hades now, like Luke 16 talks about, but then when you get to the lake of fire, everything's annihilated. They cease to exist completely. There's a conditionalist view, which is perhaps gaining in some popularity. There's a website titled Rethinking Hell that talks about this. And I'm not able to articulate the conditionalist view perhaps as clearly as I would like to, so I'm probably just going to skip that. Uh, but the, traditional, the traditionalist view, or what I believe is, makes the most sense from Scripture, is that those who are eternal souls, who are created to live eternally, will live eternally, um, though they will be living in a, uh, a state of conscious torment eternally if they are in the lake of fire. Um, for instance, uh, Matthew 10, 28, we talked about that last week. Tyler had us look at that one. Um, Jesus says, don't fear man who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fill, uh, fear God who is able to destroy or crush both body and soul in hell. So there's a, a destruction that continues on perpetually is, is the sense that I get from Scripture. Uh, an annihilationist reads that and says, yeah, he destroys them, they're gone, they're, they cease to exist. I don't see any indication that any soul ceases to exist. So um, there's a, a long answer that I don't know how far it went in answering your question, but uh, there are, those are the relevant texts. So, other thoughts or questions on body, body and soul, separation and reunion? There are some who die, yes. So well, there, at the end, they die. even during the thousand years, there are some who apparently enter into the millennium with a mortal body. Um, so, yeah, that'll that's one of the fun conversations in our eschatology section that we'll have. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. What a time to be alive. We'll see it with our own eyes. All right, let's uh, keep going. I think this is still a little bit of review. God does not instruct those made in his image in two different ways. For material and immaterial, God instructs the whole person. Now, we're bringing this up here because going back to this Lambert quote, um, the body is very good and is declared to be so by God himself. So that's the point that's being emphasized as we go into the next slide. It's not like the soul is good, the body's bad. That's Gnosticism. That's uh, a wayward teaching. But God declares both soul and body to be good. He doesn't teach us in two different ways. Here's the instructions for your soul and your body. Well, your body's just worthless. That's not what God teaches. He teaches us, he instructs us to renew our minds, to walk in his ways, etc. And uh, consider Romans 12, 1 and 2. We talked about this last week. There's a direct connection between the immaterial and the material. 
What does Romans 12, 1 and 2 say, Mr. Bowman? Starts with do not be conformed. I thought you had all of Romans memorized. I thought uh, this was going to be your time to shine. Sorry for putting you on the spot like that. The files got rearranged. <clears throat> yeah, do not be conformed to what? Yeah, this this world, but be transformed by what? Yes, so that we may what? What does it go on to say? Okay, His perfect will, and we're to present our bodies, bodies, sacrifices. So we're to renew our minds. That's an immaterial thing, isn't it? Our mind, it's in reference to our soul, our spirit, our heart to be renewed. It's not talking about necessarily, literally. Make sure that the chemicals of your brain are such and such a way. But appeal to God through your soul. Day by day, be renewed in your spirit. And present your bodies as living sacrifices. The two go hand in hand, okay? (laughs) Do you sin material or immaterially? Do you obey material or immaterially? Do you love your spouse materially or immaterially? We talked about these last week too. The utter nonsense of trying to say it's one or the other. They're all absolutely both and, not either or, right? We are holistic. We are made in his image. John Frame says, So spirit, soul, and body should not be understood as metaphysical components of man, as distinct entities within us battling for supremacy. Rather, each refers to the whole person from a particular perspective. Very important to think about. Uh, referring to the whole person from a particular perspective. Okay. For good reason, we shy away from saying that man is good, but there was a time when man was truly good. That's kind of crazy to think about. Uh, We've not known that for one single moment of our lives. But Genesis 1, 26-31 describes the origin of man man and woman, and God calls their state very good, They're absolutely innocent. So let's look at that together. Genesis 1, starting with verse 26. So yeah, if you're looking, uh, following along on your paper there, the original state of man and women... Not that Adam was a polygamist. Man and woman was very good. Very good. Okay. Who would read 26 to 31 for us? Who's got it? Okay, go ahead. All right. And God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, and the image of God who created him, male and female, God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill their hands and do it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the fish of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and of, uh, 
and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be good for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth, which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was an evening and there was morning the sixth day. Walker, how important are those verses? They're very important. Okay, Mike, how important? Yeah, of all the sections in the Bible, all the passages in the Bible, how important is that particular section? What, what about the significance for today? I mean, we're, this isn't being, this isn't God restating this to us today as though we are Adam and Eve, right? Um, we're past the fall now. Why does it matter? Now? Why does it matter today? Well, it matters today because it was shown that the things that God made were good and he gave them to us. Yeah. is God is the creator. Yes. Of man. Yes. And everything else. There's an, an authority that's clearly laid out here, right? That God's creator of us. And that we have authority over animals. And no, just two, male and female. Not male, female, you know, and yeah. transgender. Have a dozen. It establishes God, it establishes man, it establishes our relationship to him. Yes. It says that, you know, because it sounds um, cliche, but um, you have to know what the disease is in order to know what the treatment is. Yep. We have to know that we're fallen people in order to need a savior. Because if we're not fallen people, Mankind is basically good, we don't need a savior. Yeah. But I think we all intuitively, um, philosophically, and pretty much every way you can measure it, know that mankind is not good in and of themselves. Objectively, yeah. sorry. Yeah, Walker, let me put it this way. Without these opening verses of Genesis, the opening chapters of Genesis, you don't know who you are. You don't, yeah, you just don't know. And, and you see that in the world around us, don't we? People don't know who they are. They certainly don't know who God is. And if we don't know that who God is, if we don't say, yes, God is, He exists, and we are made in His image, and He has authority over us, and He's created order, and He has a particular design in all of this, then where do we go? We go exactly where our culture is, and even farther. If we lose this section, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, we lose everything. They'll call evil good and good evil. Yes. Yep. Yep. Utter chaos. Genesis 2 then details the creation of man and woman more explicitly than in chapter 1. I'll look at that next week. But I want us to look at 2.25. So go to the next chapter and look at the end there. Chapter 2, verse 25, it says... The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So 
So very straightforward terms, the picture that is being painted here is one of innocence. Alan Ross in his commentary says, their nakedness suggests that they were at ease with one another without any fear of exploitation or potential for evil. Here the nakedness, though literal, also suggests sinlessness. There was a total innocence that's being pictured here in the garden. Again, this is something that we have no familiarity with. <laughs> Not a single moment of familiarity. Because we were born into a fallen world, we remain in a fallen world. Yet we're going back to a state of absolute sinlessness, absolute purity, without any fear of exploitation or potential for evil. Wow. Wow. Thoughts on just this brief, these brief items from Genesis 1 and 2? My goodness, Jerry. Yep. But I think that's what we also long for ultimately. Yeah. Is to go back to that state where we do have actual peace. Yes. Every moment of every day with God. Without any fear whatsoever. Which is uh, we you know how many decisions you make every day based on fear? <laughs> every day. Countless. Daily. Now imagine living in a state without fear. I mean, we, we just can't even do it. But we can logically understand that we're going back to that. That it was that way and we're going back to that. Now, of course, they should have had a little more fear because there, of course, was potential for evil. But we'll get into that next week. These holistic image-bearing beings were truly good. All Adam and Eve did was good by their own free will. They obeyed as they were designed to obey in all things. The entrance of sin into the world is a mystery, and we'll unpack that next time. But if you just consider that first statement up there, those three sentences, they were truly good. All that they did was good by their own free will, and they obeyed as they were designed to obey in all things. Now, we don't know how long that lasted, of course, before they ate of the fruit. Some people say five minutes. Um, <laughs> You know, we can, uh, on the one hand, we can imagine five minutes. On the other hand, we could imagine perhaps longer. But in that state, without the influence of sin in the world, naked and not ashamed, pure, pure, innocent, they obeyed as they were designed to obey. Man. Did you have a thought? Sorry. Yes, I thought you were raising your hand. You have thoughts. <laughs> but there's none you're willing to share at this moment. Okay, good. <clears throat> So yeah, the entrance of sin into the world is a mystery. We have to admit that. In um, Bible college, we had to write the, the evil paper. It was in uh, the anthropology class, I, I think. Um, maybe it's the soteriology class. But the problem of evil. We had to explain it in an essay. A bunch of 18, 19, 20-year-olds. <laughs> Tell us how evil, why evil exists. <laughs> Make it an open and shut case, please. Uh, yep, it's a mystery. It's a mystery. Let's consider passages we turn to for knowledge of depravity. Okay, let's, we can look at these together because we do have time. Psalm 51. Psalm 51, verse 5. And hopefully these are verses you know. If these aren't verses you know, jot them down. These are helpful in evangelism, especially around here. 
Psalm 51.5, talking about the sinful condition of man. We can back up to verse 3. This is David's prayer of repentance after his sin with Bathsheba. Would someone read verses 3 to 5 for us, please? Psalm 51, 3 to 5. Who's got it? Got it. Good job. Who, me? You? Yes. Go ahead. <laughs> for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and be blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. All right. So verse 5 is the critical one there when we consider the state of man. In sin, my mother conceived me. A sinful state being affected directly by sin from conception. Wow. That's a big statement, huh? says something about man's condition now. Jeremiah. Let's go to Jeremiah 17. Verses. Nine and ten. Someone want to read verses nine and ten? Jerry Carroll, go ahead. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick or wicked. Who can understand it? I am the Lord, search the heart. I testify, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. All right, let's notice how Jeremiah in verse 9 doesn't say the heart of some people is deceitful or sick or wicked. He's speaking about all of humanity here, isn't he? And remember, the heart is a term that's used in reference to man's immaterial. Not talking about our literal physical heart. but talking about the inner man, man's will. Deceitful, wicked, sick. And then when you pair that with verse 10, the Lord is going to test it. Boy, that's a bit frightening for an unbeliever. Should be. Romans 7. Romans 7. Um, that's in the New Testament, Jeremy. New Testament. In Romans 7. Um, let's look at 16 through 18. Who can read that for us? Romans 7, 16 to 18. I got it. Okay. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the, willing is, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. All right. Look at that statement, the first part of 18. Nothing good dwells in me, in my flesh. Now there is a heavy statement about the state of man. In our flesh, nothing good dwells. A little bit different than the message we get from the world, isn't it? <laughs> Ephesians, last one we'll look at, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Who would like to read that for us? Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. 
and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of power of the air, the spirit, who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. All right. All of mankind, children of wrath, sons of disobedience, indulging the desires of their flesh, following the devil, dead. So this is a state, the state of man we're very familiar with because we live and exist in this way. Psalm 51.5, sinful from the moment of conception. We see that in our children, we see that in ourselves. Jeremiah 17.9, everyone's heart desperately sick, deceitful, wicked. Romans 7.18, nothing good dwells in our flesh. Ephesians 2, dead, children of wrath. Now reverse all of those things. <laughs> Reverse all those things, because when God brought forth Adam and Eve, he didn't bring them forth in sin. They were brought forth truly good. Their hearts weren't desperately sick and deceitful and wicked. Their hearts were good. Romans 7.18, nothing good dwells in my flesh. Well, for Adam and Eve, that wasn't true. Their flesh was totally, thoroughly good. All that they were doing was good. In Ephesians 2, they weren't dead. They were very much alive. They weren't children of wrath. They were children of God. Following God perfectly. What an amazing thought. All of these things that we become familiar with, reverse it. And that's the state that Adam and Eve were in. Humanity existed with will, mind, and emotion that was uncorrupted. Though it was not incorruptible, obviously. But a state of purity. The will, the mind, and the emotion was uncorrupted at that point. Thoughts? <laughs> Melissa? So in heaven, we will have to be both uncorrupted and incorrupted, as opposed to Eden, where it was just the one. Yes, so um, when we die, and we are in the presence of the Lord, there's a glorification of the immaterial that takes place. Uh, the glorification of our bodies is at the resurrection. But when we die and go to heaven, our soul is completely restored. Our hearts are totally made new um, in a way that sin no longer exists. Now, we know that we are new creations now. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. John 3, you must be born again. These things truly happen to us. Uh, Titus 3, we've been washed, we've been renewed by the cleansing of the Spirit. And yet there's still a way that we sin immaterially, right? Just as we serve immaterially and worship immaterially, there's a way that we still sin immaterially. And so the, all the sin that's mingled with the good is going to be removed. And so there's going to be a, a glorification in that sense. Um, and in heaven there will be no sin among those bodiless souls who are together. And then when we are reunited with our bodies and we're all together and there's a resurrection and there's a glorification, um, at that point there will be no sin in the body either. There's no sin remaining individually. And then after the thousand years, when all things are made new and we're in a new heaven and new earth, there will be no presence of sin. So you think about in the thousand years, we'll be there with 
incorruptible bodies, incorruptible souls, and yet we're still surrounded by sin to a degree. And then after that, we won't be surrounded by sin at all. So there's a, a fading out of sin in stages and a glory, being glorified in stages, too. Uh, a lot to think about. Tyler. Our future glorification is going to be on the basis of Christ's blood and his perfect coming. This is our justification and sanctification are. And so with him being incorruptible, with him being infallible, he will make us incorruptible and infallible. Unlike Adam and Eve, who had the ability to sin, we won't have that ability. Andy? So this is a related question, but it's one that's occurred to me, and Walker actually asked it also. Satan knows the Bible. He knows what Scripture says. I mean, he quoted Scripture when he was trying to tempt Christ, right? Why would he endeavor to uh, taint people or to take people down with him, so to speak, uh, at the end of a thousand years, right? Because Christ is going to be reigning on earth, right? In other words, people will be able to see the risen Christ. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's like a, I, I, I mean, I've got some answers in my own, but I like that. And I'm sorry if I digress. Well, I think we have to put that in the category of mystery. Uh, you know, we're not told explicitly why. Um, except for God is most glorified in it, or by it, or through it. But look with me to, at Proverbs 16. Go to Proverbs 16. Uh, let's look at 3 to 5. Would you read those, Andy? Proverbs 16, 3 to 5? Sure. Commit your words to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. All right. God's made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. So God's sovereign over that, over Satan's rebellion, his unsuccessful rebellion. And it's going to happen according to God's own purpose, to glorify himself. Logan? So, uh, I have a question here. Um, and it might be, I don't know if it gets a little sticky or not, but so we're born evil, right? We're born with that sin nature. So, what, uh, And he says, Jesus, you know, he took the child and set him on his knee in Matthew 18. And unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Yep. But they have the sin nature. Yes. So, um, yeah. How, at what age? Well, that's not it. it. So, so there are multiple ways of interpreting that passage. Uh-huh. And we can't interpret it to mean, unless you reverse your nature, to have the nature of a child uh, in regard to sin, right. then you can't enter heaven. I don't think that's what Jesus is teaching. No. 
he, he seems to be referencing their disposition because he's gathering the children. They're embracing him. He's embracing them and they're embracing him. And he's talking about with a childlike faith coming to him, mm-hmm. embracing Christ. Yeah, it says, for it says, whoever humbles himself like this. There you go. There you go. So it's not that they're without a sin nature. Right. It's, some it's that they don't have the understanding of Pharisees or Sadducees who are always trying to trap him, who are always questioning him instead of immediately embracing him. And so it's a humility aspect thing, not a state of your soul, if it's, is it corrupted or not sort of thing. Which I think some people would believe that if a child dies, you know, that they don't go to heaven, yep. which I don't believe that. Right. There are some people who, who teach that. Yeah. So. Yep. Rex and Melissa. Yeah, so like, I guess what we're talking about is the community thing is, is the fact that children, little ones like that, typically will believe everything that they are told. Is, is the way I kind of see yep. it. And yep. they will. You tell the sun, you know, the sky is, is, is green. Yeah, that's They'll right. Buy it, they'll uh-huh. buy it. So if that's, and us being like that, everything that we have heard from God, there's no question that we, we believe everything that he said. We yes. We heart. It's yeah, it's a disposition yeah. thing, right? That we are we are ready and willing to hear from God. Absolutely. Melissa? I had another thought on the Satan thing. Okay. That he, like, the nature of being rebellious, which is who he is, is that you don't submit to authority. So even though he he might, like in the exchange with Job, when God, or in Job, when God was saying, like, look at Job, Satan wasn't like, oh, you're right. But instead, he was like, well, let me, oh. let me try to get him. So yeah. the nature of Satan is to rebel against God. He's not going to see the ending and be like, oh, okay, that's how it ends. And furthermore, demons are not redeemable. Mm-hmm. So you think of some person who, from our perspective, finally stops rebelling and is redeemed. That ha- that's happened to all of us in this room, right? Um, and hopefully it will happen to people that we know and love. That will never happen to a fallen angel. They're either elect or evil, and they're locked in to those states, okay? So, yes, that's a good point. Yeah, Andy, what, what's the alternative for Satan? To get saved? <laughs> he can't, right? Right. He's locked into his nature. It was a, it was a stupid line in the movie that I enjoy um, called uh, Constantine. But basically, yeah, basically... Gabriel is, is speaking to a fallen man, and it's, and it's got all kinds of theological problems with it. <laughs> it's Keanu Reeves, right? Yes. So there you go. Strike one. Right, strike one. <laughs> Ted. Anyway, um, but basically, Gabriel says, you know, you're given this gift that you cannot be redeemed, you know, molesters and murderers and all this stuff, and you have no appreciation for it. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I think it's insightful. Like I said, I don't agree with the theology of the movie, but I think it's an insightful line. Okay, Um, 10 minutes left here. Before the fall, Adam and Eve had no experiential knowledge of good and evil. The conscience was intellectual. Let's look at Genesis 3.22. I've been moving you all around the scriptures today. Sorry about that. But uh, Genesis 3... Let's look at uh, 22 and, no, 22 to 24. You can read that for us. Genesis 3, 22 to 24. Go ahead. All right. 22 to 24? Mm-hmm. 
And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. All right, so this is a little complex, but I think we can grasp it. Um, the conscience that Adam and Eve had before the fall was purely intellectual. Just like our knowledge of the new heaven and new earth. We're totally sinless and there's no sin around us. That's totally intellectual, right? Because we've never experienced it. We can't refer back to any past experience and say, oh, it'll be like that. <laughs> there's just no, nothing we can compare it to. It's purely intellectual. We can grasp it logically, but that's it. Now, the same was true for Adam and Eve with sin. When God told them, don't eat of that tree... They had no reference point to say, oh, it's like that, like that thing that we've done before. It's like this or like that. There was no sin in the world. All right? So their conscience, their knowledge was purely intellectual. And then after the fall, their nature became corrupted. And every child that was born to them, by nature, understood sin. So like when you tell your child... Uh, not to do something and say, give, you know, give the child a command, don't do this. That child can make all kinds of reference points because that child is by nature a sinner. That child has committed other sins. That child has other commands. Adam and Eve had no reference point when they were told, don't do this one thing. There were no other commands of don't do. There were positive commands, but there were negative commands. Death meant. Yes. Yeah, death. Yeah, death. What was death? And the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Oh, no reference point. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> I, I, it's just a wonderful existence for a moment. It'll be a better existence when we go back uh, to the garden, so to speak. It's phrasing that people use. But it'll be even better. There's a book that Melissa has called Better Than Eden. Because there will be an incorruptible state at that point. This state was uncorrupted. But it wasn't incorruptible, because it obviously got corrupted. We're going into a state that will be uncorrupted and incorruptible. It'll be even better than Eden. So let's think through a few things these last few minutes. What is the image of God? Hearkening back to last week, what is the image of God? How can we sum this up? Is that your emotion, will, and intellect? Okay, what about them? In fact, that's... The image of God that we are given, we have that will, emotion, and the intellect, as God does. I guess maybe that's yeah. that, that way. But. Yeah, and um, we could say those three things, because to a degree, other creatures have those things. Dolphins are pretty smart, right? Dogs show emotion, uh, things of that nature, and of course animals uh, exercise their will in certain ways. But we have those three things um, reflecting God's possession of those three things. There's a chasm between man and animal in those things. Uh, we can reason differently than animals, even though there are some smart animals out there. 
There's certainly a difference in the way that we reason and think and have intellect. And, and the way that we express will and all that. Sorry, go ahead. And they don't have souls. Yes, and they don't have souls. Right. Walker. So, sorry. But Paul was technically when Eve bit the fruit, right? Because Satan was talking to her, right? And she must have had to think of eating the fruit to in order to do that. Um, yes, so when, when Adam and Eve took of the fruit, which Scripture seems to reference this as a singular event, not as, it doesn't get down into the granular of play-by-play, -play, instant replay kind of stuff that we like to do in our culture. Um, yes, there, that whole event was the fall. And what's interesting is Adam is the one responsible for it, right? So, you know, it, Scripture doesn't seem interested, God doesn't seem interested through Scripture, to point out to us that this is what happened moment by moment, so you know the exact time when the fall happened. But rather, this was an act of re rebellion by the two who were one flesh, Adam being the responsible head in that relationship and the representative head of all mankind. So that's the big lesson that we're to get from that. And we'll talk more about that next week. And Adam was right there. Yes. She gave to her husband who was with her. Do males and females equally bear the image of God? Yes. <laughs> Response was a little slow, but at least it was emphatic. Uh, okay. Yes, they equally bear the image of God. How would you describe the constitutions or the, the makeup of humans? How would you describe that to somebody from a biblical perspective? Okay. We are material and immaterial. Yes, that's like a 50,000 foot view. Bring it down to like 20,000 foot view. Our, our, we are seriously flawed from the original design. Fatally flawed. Okay. So there's, and we'll talk about that next week too. There's so much we can't, we can't talk about until we get to Genesis 3. But yeah, there's a marring, marring of the image that has taken place. We have a soul, but we are sinful. Both are a necessary part of who we are. Yeah, the, the necessary part is necessary to express, isn't it? That it's necessary that we are body and soul, material and immaterial, together. A holistic aspect. Okay? It's not, and, it's not a duality like the right. Gnostics said that it was. Yes. Where there's material and there's immaterial, and the immaterial is good and the material is bad. Yeah. Actually, for us, it's material and immaterial are well, it's interesting. Um, scripture says the old man has died. Scripture says the old things have passed away. All things have become new. Scripture says that you are born again. There's a newness that has come. You've been resurrected to newness of life in Christ. So... In that sense, you're uncorrupted. However, there is still a great influence of sin. You're the, I mean, in your flesh, nothing good dwells in your flesh. We know that. 
But as far as your immaterial goes, you are still very, very much influenced by your body of death. And that's Romans 7. Right? So the willing is present within me, but I'm not able to carry it out. That's the struggle. Basically, could you say that uh, man is still corrupted even after salvation, but not corrupted to eternal damnation? Yes, and not corrupted in the same sense as it was before, right? True. Because we now have a will to please God, which we didn't before. Uh, desire to serve, which we didn't before. Hatred of sin, which we didn't have before. So, complicated business, isn't it? Uh, Charles Spurgeon said once, I know that scripture says the old man is dead, but... Every once in a while, I feel a bone move. <laughs> and that's, I think that aptly expresses what this Christian life is like. What comfort can we derive from the narrative of human origins as we think about Genesis 1 and 2, how God created in the state that they were in? What comfort is there in Genesis 1 and 2? We have purpose. Okay, good. There's purpose. And that purpose is tied to our identity, too, right? If... You can't have, you can't recognize that purpose if you don't recognize your identity as image bearers of God. Well, God certainly has great expectations for us. He's demonstrated his commitment to, to having us achieve those. Yes. Again, Good. that's complicated. Because Good. Of... Sin complicates things. <laughs> Everything, even theology. Especially theology. <laughs> yes. Okay. And then it will, yeah, so the comfort is that knowing what God created, how and why, and what the state existed there where he walked and talked with them, gives us something explicit to look forward to. Yes. That we are capable of being perfect again. Maybe yeah, yeah. not in this life. Yes. Yeah. God's bringing things. He's under. He's got it in control. God has power and authority, and He's good. We have hope. Yeah. That's right. The same God who made us is the God who saves us. Right. Lizzie. From the moment of conception. Because the body, you've missed the last class and a half. The body never exists apart from the soul, except for when we're dead before the resurrection. When God created a body, he created a soul with that body. Okay. All right, I think that is the end. It's the end of the presentation as we know it. So next week, we'll get into Genesis 3 and talk about the fall. Last question, why? Say that again. And I said along with that, he also created hell. Right? Yes. And God so, is sovereign creator over right. Hades and yes. But since Jesus <laughs> hadn't died on the cross yet, we weren't allowed into heaven, right? Correct. So we had to stay in Jehovah. Yes. Abraham's bosom is what it's referred oh, to. Right. Yes. Yep. Melissa. Yep. Oh, Ecclesiastes 11.5 says, As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of the woman with child, so do you do not know the work of God who makes the person. That's Ecclesiastes what? 11.5. Ecclesiastes 11.5, Lizzie. There you go. Ecclesiastes is a good book. Well, in the dark. Yeah. 
biology has confirmed that at conception, our entire design is set in flesh. Yes, that's right. Okay, um, Mr. Bowman, you want to pray for the rest of the day? Lord God, we're so thankful to you for giving us your word, your 